Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. County's emergency rooms are once again strained due to COVID. Talking to people in ERs and, and such, they're all really expecting uh, uh, Omicron to spread like wildfire. I'm Christina Kim with Jade Heidman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. new emissions-free energy storage project breaks ground next month. The main goal of this project is the larger goal that California has, which is tried to bring in more sources of power that do not emit greenhouse gas emissions. Lions, tigers, and bears, we take a look at a local exotic animal sanctuary. And just in time for the fifth day of Kwanzaa, a look at the holiday's origins and purpose. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Cases of COVID-19 are once again on the rise in San Diego County. On Tuesday, the county reported more than 3,600 new cases. That's the highest number of new cases in a single day since last winter. And now, due to the growing number of cases and the increased demand for testing, we are at risk of straining hospitals again. Paul Sisson is the health reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune, and he joins us now for more on the latest COVID-19 news. Hi, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me. As I mentioned, the county reported a huge single-day increase in cases. Can you put that in context for us? How does this compare to last year? And are we seeing major differences from last winter's surge? You know, looking at the numbers and going back to last year, it looks like the number of new cases that the county is recording daily is maybe even a bit higher than it was this time last year. You know, the only higher numbers, as you said, were, were seeing it kind of at the peak of the winter surge in, in uh, mid to late January of this year. So it really does look like we have quite a surge on our hands. Uh, you know, as as everyone is aware, we, we still have New Year's Eve parties to get through. And, uh, you know, last year, the clubs and bars and, uh, and indoor dining and restaurants was uh, 
was not open. So, uh, so we've definitely got a situation where this appears to be spreading quite quickly and there's going to be a heck of a lot more social interaction uh, just coming up tomorrow than there was uh, last year. So, uh, you know, at, talking to people in ERs and, and such, they're, uh, they're all really expecting uh, uh, Omicron to spread like wildfire uh, before we get through this holiday season. The, the hospitals are really uh, expecting a significant surge uh, in January and perhaps even into February. Hospitals are seeing increases in COVID admissions, but not as many as this time last year. Despite that, the county issued an emergency alert yesterday because of the increased traffic in emergency rooms. What's driving this uptick and how are hospitals responding? Yeah, that's right. Uh, We learned about uh, the county EMS service uh, putting out a bulletin to all of the local emergency rooms, letting them know that many were having to go on what's called diversion uh, where they significantly reduce the number of ambulances that they can receive uh, because they're full. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, I guess at one point yesterday, about half of the 22 ERs in town were in that diversion category. And, and through some skillful maneuvering, they were able to bring that number down by the evening. You know, there are several different things driving this. You know, of course, a lot of people are infected and having symptoms and coming in and, and they're worried uh, and they want a doctor to check them out. Uh, and then uh, what we also heard from Dr. Caning at County EMS uh, yesterday was that some appear to be coming in just to get tested, uh, that they, you know, the, the lines for testing at the 400 uh, different testing locations across the county are very, very long. Uh, you know, we had a photographer down in Chula Vista yesterday who observed uh, waits at one testing facility in South Bay that were over two hours to get tested. Uh, so it appears that some folks are, are getting frustrated waiting in those long lines and just going to the nearest ER and coming in and saying, I don't feel well. And you know, they, they by, uh, by routine, test everybody who comes to the door uh, for COVID, no matter what their symptoms are. Uh, so it looks like part of the ER surge that we're seeing right now across the county is linked to an increased demand for testing uh, although there are plenty of people coming in with symptoms as well. Talking to one physician at, at Sharp yesterday, what he said was, you know, we're seeing these folks come in, they're, they're a bit younger than they, than they were last year. And what we're not finding is nearly as much uh, respiratory distress uh, as, as we saw last year. We're seeing a lot, a lot more um, minor symptoms. Right. I want to ask you something really quickly. You said ambulances are being diverted. What impact does that have on patients and the emergency healthcare system as a whole? It has a, an immediate and direct uh, impact. What it means is uh, you might be taken if you have a serious problem, if you have if you're having a heart attack, or or if you have a broken leg, or you know any kind of emergent situation, uh, you might be taken further away uh, than you otherwise would be. Uh, you, you know, if your local uh, hospital is on bypass, you might find yourself traveling further for care, you know, because your local ER is inundated. Right. And I also want to ask you, so you're mentioning that a lot of this strain is because people want to get tested and they know that they can do that in the emergency room. So if people are listening to this, what should they do instead if they really do want to get tested? Um, you know, uh, I guess the, the main advice is have patience, <laughs> which a lot of people don't have, especially when they're standing outside in the rain and it's cold outside. Uh, you know, it's totally understandable that people don't really want to do that. You know, but also if you uh, if you don't have symptoms uh, and, and you've just been exposed, 
you know, it looks like this illness is pretty mild. Uh, you know, if you don't want to wait for testing and don't want to go into the ER, one thing you can do is just monitor your symptoms. It's, it's a good idea to have what they call a pulse oximeter in your house that allows you to, uh, to monitor your uh, blood oxygen levels. And so that's one good way to kind of know if your body is really being impacted. But, you know, if you, if you can't get tested and, and you don't have the patience to wait in those lines, uh, you should probably curtail your um, contact with other people until you until you are able to get tested. But sadly, it doesn't really seem like there's a, a, a simple quick fix that uh, they can short circuit the line for testing. It's just uh, there's so much demand everywhere right now that it's just uh, it's going to be a long wait. That seems to be the uh, the reality, sadly. In your reporting, you say that compared to last year when patients came into hospitals with COVID-19, it was presenting a lot more severely. Now it's much more like the flu, which tracks with what we've been hearing of the Omicron variant. What do doctors and experts say that you've been talking to about people taking Omicron less seriously because it appears to present more mildly? You know, they're right in the middle of it. So they, they don't, uh, you know, they've, they've been asking people to get vaccinated and kind of curtail their their activities for months now. And, um, you know, they're, they're somewhat frustrated that people haven't done that. But uh, at this point, the interactions have already happened. Uh, you know, even if you got vaccinated today, it wouldn't take effect immediately. So you wouldn't be immediately protected. So I, I think they're kind of in a hunker down kind of mentality. They, they know that a big wave of patients is going to come at them and that it really can't be stopped at this point. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune health reporter Paul Sisson. Thank you so much for joining us. I know we'll be talking to you a lot more in 2022. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. A new energy storage project is rolling out across the county with the first two sites scheduled to break ground within the next month. The San Diego Energy Storage Project aims to add more emissions-free energy to California's electric grid. Once completed, there will be a total of 12 sites across the county with enough storage to power 110,000 homes for two hours. Joining me to talk about the new energy project is San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nikoleski. Rob, welcome. Hi, Jade. Good talking to you again. Likewise, could you tell us about the 12 new sites and how they'll work? Well, the batteries that are going to be installed will store up energy and then release it into California's power grid. Two of the sites will use zinc battery storage technology. The other 10 sites will use what's called lithium iron phosphate batteries. Now, your listeners are probably familiar with lithium ion batteries. Now, lithium iron phosphate is a little bit different. Uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries are considered less flammable. And so they're considered, at least in this project, to be uh, a better choice. How powerful will these sites be? Well, the entire portfolio is going to account for 165 megawatts and 336 megawatt hours of battery storage electricity. And as you mentioned, that roughly translates into enough to power 110,000 homes for two hours. And what's the main goal of this project? The main goal of this project is the larger goal that California has, which is tried to bring in more sources of power that do not emit greenhouse gas emissions. And um, that's because under the state's renewable portfolio standard, about 60% of California's electricity must come from renewable sources by 2030. And by 2045, if not earlier, 
100% of all the energy sources must come from carbon-free sources. So that's a big driver behind this project and other ones across the state. So if this project is successful, how does that change the trajectory of our climate crisis? Well, the thought is that if you're able to use battery storage, that that can help replace some of the fossil fuel sources that are out there. And the overall trick to this whole thing is that here in California, we have a lot of solar production that we get during the day. In fact, we get so much solar production that it can't be used, that sometimes it has to be curtailed. And so what they're trying to do is be able to take that excess solar or any other excess power that we have during the day, then store that up and use batteries to do that. Then when solar production declines rapidly, once the sun goes down, you might be able to deploy, you will be able to deploy Um, energy from batteries and other sources like that that can store up energy. So this whole idea of energy storage is very critical for California to try to meet these climate goals. And we know the first two sites are breaking ground within the next month in Chula Vista and El Cajon. Where will the other 10 sites be located in the county? They'll be scattered all across the county. There's one of fairly decent size in La Mesa, another one fairly decent size in Spring Valley, The uh, second largest project is 30 megawatts, uh, and that's out in Rancho Peñasquitos. And then the biggest will be built out in Ramona, and that'll be 39 megawatts. Hmm. So when are all the sites expected to be up and running? Well, the El Cajon and Chula Vista site that you mentioned at the top of this uh, interview that are just broken ground, they're expected to begin commercial operations as soon as early April. Of the entire portfolio, they expect to have all 12 sites up and running by the end of 2023. And could you tell us about who will be designing and operating these systems? It's this company that's based in San Diego called Enersmart. Uh, They're a renewable energy company. Uh, They're fairly new. I wrote a story about them about a year ago, about another project that they're doing in the San Diego area. And it's not as big. But uh, they're new, but they're making, um, making some progress here. All right. How much is the project estimated to cost and how will it be funded? It's estimated to cost up to $100 million. And Enersmart was able to get some funding, some financing from two pretty big uh, entities. One is Siemens Financial. The other is a North American Development Bank. They're going to split the costs about 50-50 between Siemens and the North American Development Bank. The North American Development Bank is kind of interesting. It's a binational project that's been established by the U.S. and Mexican governments that's been established in order to uh, build and enhance infrastructure projects along the border of those two countries. Do you foresee more projects like this rolling out across the county or even the state in the near future? Yeah, I think so. In fact, definitely, it's probably a better way to put it because of those California renewable mandates that we talked about earlier. There's a lot of requirements and there's a lot of push to bring more renewable projects into the forum, put them into the grid. And on top of that, the Public Utilities Commission has ordered utilities and power companies to come up with more sources of power, especially clean energy projects in the next few years. The grid really needs these new projects, especially because in the next couple of years, the last remaining nuclear power plant in California, the Diablo Canyon power plant up in uh, central California, that's going to 
be going away. It's going to be uh, discontinued. And that's roughly about 2,000 megawatts that need to be replaced. So California is looking for more in the next couple of years, more sources of power, especially clean power. All right. So we know one of the big goals of this project is to be able to store and use this emissions-free energy more efficiently. Does this have the prospect of lowering energy bills at all? At this point, I, I doubt it because the general thought is that this particular project that we're talking about, that Entersmart is doing, I asked uh, the managing partner of that company what the estimated cost would be. And it's about $300 per megawatt hour, which is more expensive than conventional sources. But the overall thought that uh, backers of energy storage say is that they point to the fact that energy storage, battery storage prices have dramatically gone down. A few years ago, it was in the tens of thousands of dollars. Now it's depending uh, on the various estimates that have been said. For example, the National Renewable Energy uh, Laboratory in Colorado, they estimate that by the year 2030, that battery storage prices could be about $148 a megawatt hour. So the goal is to get to battery storage prices at about $100 a megawatt hour. So we're getting closer, but I don't think that this particular project will translate into uh, lower energy bills for customers in San Diego right now. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune energy reporter, Rob Nikoleski. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Christina Kim. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. Whether a cup size A, B, or D, or any other letter of the alphabet, losing one or both breasts to cancer can be a shattering experience. Earlier this year, KPBS Evening Edition anchor Maya Trabolsi met a group of tight-knit women living at a retirement home in Escondido who are lightening the pain associated with mastectomy, one loving stitch at a time. It's like riding a bicycle, you don't forget. In her little cottage at Redwood Terrace Retirement Home, Pat Anderson's creativity hasn't slowed down over the years. After a long career as a textile designer, she still enjoys making yarn by hand on her homemade spinning wheel. And everything you wear starts with this process. Her work, both old and new, is strewn on her couch. Her friend Pat Moeller is here. This is the very first thing I ever made. Did you see this hat, Pat? No. And admires her creations from the 70s. How neat. 
The two Pats call this tranquil home in Escondido the magic place, as it's become the setting of their new friendship, as well as a surprising grassroots movement called SBW. And that stands for Sisterhood of the Boobless Wonders. The Sisterhood of the Boobless Wonders are breast cancer survivors and part of a trio of knitters who have literally taken comfort into their own hands in the shape of hand-knitted bust forms aptly called busters. And here they are. They're nothing more than a specially designed accessory. In the six years since Pat made the first prototype, the Busters Project has helped more than 1,200 women across the country who have undergone mastectomy surgery. All women's clothing is designed to accommodate the bust contour. If that is gone, your clothes don't fit right, and you end up feeling dumpy and unkempt. Pat says most of all, it shows. And until now, the only official solutions offered to patients were surgical reconstruction or medical-grade silicone prosthetics, which can be heavy. Busters, on the other hand... This weighs less than an ounce. They're soft, they're washable, natural, and normal-looking. At first glance, busters may look simple. These are tricky to make. Pat says there is a very specific knitting technique that involves the direction and the grain of the yarn, and Pat has proudly patented the design. We've got a contour here, but it has to be flat on the back. What makes them even more unique, unlike prosthetics, is that they are customizable in size by simply adding or removing the filling. Almost a full cup size larger or smaller. Every last detail has been considered. The light, bright, cheerful colors help women remember that they are breast cancer survivors, not victims. Each pair takes about eight hours to knit. It's a real labor of love. What do you think of something like this? Color-wise? So Pat Moeller stepped in to help. She happened to be in front of me in the buffet line, and I said, if you need any help knitting, I would be happy to. And she's doing the biggest sizes, so you know she's a good knitter. <laughs> When fellow resident Bernice Dufour found a lump on her breast... I didn't want any nonsense. I said, just lop it off. Medicare covered the cost of the silicone prosthetic she holds in her hand, which usually costs more than $200 per breast. I weighed it on my postal scale. It weighs two pounds, and it was hot in the summer. and It could even be cold in the winter. I don't think anybody would choose this. Since she was introduced to busters, she says this breast sits in a box. Now I have a much better choice, and I'm sticking with it. A basket full of thank you notes with gratitude from recipients usually comes with donations so nice. that go towards sponsoring another woman's pair, from one survivor to another. There's life after breast cancer. As for Pat Anderson, in a career that dates back more than 50 years, she says Busters is her final project. How many almost 89-year-old women can say that they're still doing something that makes a difference? And much like the 60-40 acrylic nylon blend chosen for its strength and its softness, these survivors exude that same resilience, creating a product that is built to last <laughs> down to the final thoughtful stitch. Maya Trabulsi, KPBS News. There's a major effort in the U.S. to shut down the multi-billion dollar trade in exotic animals like lions, tigers, and leopards. Some of these big cats wind up in sanctuaries, like the one right here in San Diego County. KPBS reporter John Carroll took us there on International Tiger Day in July. 
Set among the rolling hills of San Diego County's backcountry, just a few miles outside of Alpine, a menagerie, 93 acres of sanctuary, and a name, lions, tigers, and bears, a home for rescued animals. So exotic animal trade suck into drugs and weapons and human trafficking in our country. Uh, these animals are used, abused, and bred for nothing more than profit. Bobby Brink is the founder and director of Lions, Tigers, and Bears. Home to dozens of animals, not just the ones in the title. Bobcats, goats, a llama, along with some horses and birds live here too. It is accredited by the American Sanctuary Association and that's important. The True Sanctuary Rescues provides a lifetime home, does not breed, sell, or trade animals. Videographer Mike Damron and I were here last Thursday, International Tiger Day. At least 10,000 tigers are kept in captivity as pets. People begin their time here watching a video explaining how the animals they're about to see got here. But this being International Tiger Day, there was something special. Treats hidden in cardboard creations, raw meat for Nola and Mocha. It costs either 43 or 46 dollars for adults depending on the day and 26 dollars for children for a day's visit. The 15,000 yearly visitors help pay the bills. It's about $15,000 a year to feed just one cat. And then, our, of course, our biggest expenses are building these vast habitats, insurance, pumping the water, electricity, a keeper, keeper salary. All these animals got to have someone to take care of them daily. So, yeah, it's not cheap. About $2 million a year to take care of 65 animals. So while visitors help with daily expenses, we do survive on donations. Donations that help pay for big costs, like the rehabilitation of the animals. A lot of them are in bad shape when they arrive. The life these bears lived before getting here is stomach-turning. Baloo behind me is a perfect example, what we call pit bears. So they're literally in cinder block pits where the bears can't see out, kept in breeding pairs, and then when the babies are born, they pull the babies about eight days, six, eight days. Um, from the mama. They take them up top where the mama can hear and smell them but can't see them for people to get their picture taken. Do you still get angry at your fellow human beings? I have to control my temper a lot because you can't lose your temper or we lose. And we want to get the animals out of there and sometimes this can take like years, five, six, years to get animals out of just disgusting places. Bobby Brink began her professional career as a flight attendant in 1990, but she soon realized that wasn't for her. Next, she became a restaurateur, but eventually she and her husband's life paths led them here. They opened this place in 2002. She says nowadays, her most rewarding moments come from visitors who arrive not knowing anything about the exotic animal trade, but leave educated and motivated to do something about it. Someday, Brink hopes there won't be a need for places like lions, tigers, and bears. That is a sanctuary's job, is to try to be putting sanctuaries out of business. But until that day arrives, Brink, her staff, and her volunteers will continue to expand this special place by building more habitats and by doing the daily work of making life as good as it can be for these animals who have suffered so much.
Kwanzaa is a seven-day celebration of Black culture that begins on December 26th and ends on January 1st. During the celebration, seven principles are observed, and on this fifth day of Kwanzaa, purpose is the theme. Here to talk about the holiday is Starla Lewis, a professor of Black Studies at Mesa College and SDSU. Professor Lewis, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So first, how is Kwanzaa celebrated? Well, you know, most people don't realize it, but it's actually celebrated all over the world. And there's a beautiful documentary called Black Candle that shows you Kwanzaa happening throughout the world. Um, and it's celebrated during the, uh, the 26th through the 31st of what we officially call a Christmas holiday. But the reality is it's after Christmas. It has nothing to do with Christmas. It's not a substitute for Christmas. So people who celebrate Christmas or any other holidays can also celebrate Kwanzaa because it is a cultural celebration. You mentioned the documentary called Black Candle. What's the significance of the Black Candle during Kwanzaa? The Black Candle is the first candle that is lit on the first day of Kwanzaa, and then it's lit every day after, and it represents the people. And today's principle is purpose. Can you talk a bit about about that and how it's observed during the holiday. The principles are observed throughout the year. And on that day, people come together and talk about how they've lived that principle throughout the entire year. And purpose, you know, is like destiny. It's like we're born into the world with a purpose. We're giving gifts, we're given talents. And when we tap into those and manifest those, then we begin to uh, fulfill our purpose for being. So really, this is a time of self-reflection um, over the entire year. What are the other principles? U-N-I-T-Y, unity, which is umoja. Self-determination, which is my favorite, kuji chadalia, because it's about naming ourselves and defining ourselves and speaking for ourselves. And my whole thing is self-love, so I love kuji chadalia. Uh, collective work and responsibility, which is ujama, uh, that we come together, work together, and we're all responsible for each other. Cooperative economics, which is uj ujima, and ujima is sharing wealth. It's a concept of believing that we're here to not only um, build for ourselves, but build for our future generations, those that we may never even meet. And then of course, Nia, which is purpose. And then Kaumba, which is creativity, creativity. My great, great, great aunt Kate used to always say, you come from a people who learned how to make a way out of no way. And I believe that's our creativity. And then the last principle is Imani faith. African people are very spiritual people. So we believe in things that are not yet seen. And I do believe that that's one of the reasons we survived enslavement because even without any evidence that we were going to be free, we knew that our spirits were free. Hmm. And collectively, why are these principles so important to the Black community? Well, one is because they uh, encompass many different cultures on the continent of Africa. Uh, Malana Karanga brought the, the principles and values together and kind of blended them based on the different cultures. So all of these principles can be found in every African society or culture. And, you know, the pandemic has changed so many communities. Do you think the pandemic really highlights the need for these principles? Well, I think the pandemic highlights the needs for everything, but especially 
uh, collective work and responsibility and cooperative economics. We're in a time where if we're not sharing, uh, many people are suffering. And then also the whole concept of Imani faith. You know, faith and fear can't exist in the same place at the same time. So either we're gonna have faith that we're gonna get through this, or we're gonna struggle in our fears of what might happen that may never happen. Are there organizations or areas uh, of San Diego where you see these the seven principles working? Uh, actually, I see them working wherever they're being taught. But I know that every year in Balboa Park at the World Beat Center, the community comes together and celebrates these principles. And it's usually packed. And the beauty of Makeda Cheatham, who is the director of the World Beat Center, is that she also owned the number one vegetarian restaurant in San Diego for many years called The Prophet. So she literally feeds the community for free throughout the Kwanzaa celebration. With COVID uh, and, the, and the lockdowns and the, all the restrictions, uh, they only did two in-person uh, Kwanzaa celebrations, but you can see Kwanzaa virtually uh, by going to the World Beat Center and looking at their website. Mm. And, and how was Kwanzaa started? Well, it was started by a student at uh, UCLA, Dr. Mylana Karanga, who later became a professor at San Diego State University and is now a professor at Long Beach State. And he said that we, Black people celebrated everybody's holidays, but their own. And the only holiday we celebrated before Kwanzaa was when they told us two years later that we were freed in Texas. And that's important, but that doesn't define the, the vastness of who we are. And do you think that there are, are ways to really engage the community, to carry the principles of Kwanzaa uh, beyond December 26th through January 1st, but 365 days a year? Oh, absolutely. I was in the barbershop getting my hair cut and they asked me, how is it that we can get gang members to get out of gangs? And I said, oh, that's easy. And they looked at me like, what? And I said, all you have to do is teach them who they really are. Because when people know who they really are, they're not a threat or danger to anybody else. When we love ourselves and accept ourselves, and then we can see ourselves in others, then we want for others what we want for ourselves. That's interesting. Let's touch on that a little bit. What's been the challenge to us getting to know ourselves? It's called miseducation. We're finally in a place where we're getting ready to talk about ethnic studies to represent the the contributions and, and perspectives of all the people who make up America because America is very diverse. And yet, historically, we only learn about the history of our European brothers and sisters. We can quote them, but we often know nothing about ourselves. And my favorite example is when I desegregated a school in Altadena, I was nine, and the teacher asked us to talk about where we came from, and I was sitting there trying to figure out where Negro land was because I had never heard about that's coming from Africa. And, and there's a lot of power in knowing where you come from, who you are. Absolutely. Knowledge is power. You can't be yourself if you don't know yourself. I've been speaking with Starla Lewis, a professor of Black Studies at Mesa College and SDSU. Professor Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me and have a wonderful Kwanzaa. You too. Happy Kwanzaa.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Christina Kim. Maureen Cavanaugh has the day off. Charles McPherson is one of jazz's most prolific saxophonists, still performing and releasing new music even in his 80s. In September of 2020, he put out an album called Jazz Dance Suites, inspired by his time working as composer and residence at the San Diego Ballet. In February, we asked McPherson to put a playlist together of the music that got him into jazz, shaped his style, and drives his music. Here's Charles McPherson. Even if I can't perform, just to have music in my mind, I hear it in my mind, and to be able to just go to the piano and play a few chords or or go to the saxophone and play what I hear. Or, so I, I try to be busy and try to be creative, even though that uh, these are some trying times. Just the passion and the love I have for the art itself, it just makes me happy, just to, the fact that I, I can do it and hear it and, and I can actually entertain myself. One of my uh, inspirations is Charlie Parker. And one of the first compositions or song that I heard that Charlie Parker play was a, a, a song called Tico Tico. Charlie Parker, I had never heard him before. And uh, when I heard that, I, I heard it on a jukebox in my neighborhood. It immediately resonated with me. I, I, I was about 14 years old when I first heard this. And even though I uh, did not know how to, to explain why this resonated with me, but really what it was, I could hear, even at that young age, his sense of logic, melodic, linear, logic. In other words, these long, beautiful musical phrases, improvised phrases, were well connected, you know, in a linear, melodic, and a very logical way. And even though I was a kid, I could hear this logic. It made sense to me. There's an album by Billie Holiday that impressed me a lot. You've changed That sparkle in your eyes is gone 
And of course, it's a famous record. It's, it's entitled Lady yes. in Satin. Yeah, I mean, I cry now talking about it, listening to some of this. You're breaking my heart. You've changed. You've changed. Your kisses now are so blasé. I learned so much from Billie Holiday in particular, not just this record, but Billie Holiday in particular, because besides having this really nice, pleasant voice, there is this high-level degree of honesty uh, in, in how she sings and how she interprets. There's no egoic sense of trying to impress people she opens her mouth, she sings the song, and there's no affectation, there's no trying to prove anything, there's nothing narcissistic about it. It's just pure emotional honesty and a very deep understanding of the words that she's singing. You're not the angel what's new. No need to tell me that we're through. It's all over now. You've changed. Bela Bartok, I really love him, and I got interested in him. It's funny the way it came about. I moved into this apartment and the preceding people had left a bunch of classical records that they didn't take with them. And they were in good shape, they were LPs. And one of them was a symphony called The Miraculous Mandarin Suite by Bela Bartok. I listened to this and I was mesmerized for about 40 minutes or however long it is. And I fell in love with him right then. Melodically and harmonically, it's just, uh, just gorgeous as far as I'm concerned. And I learned a lot. And that sort of uh, introduced me to classical music um, in more of a, a, de a deeper way. I really started actively listening to different composers. Anytime you learn anything new, it broadens you, or just gives you more dimension as an artist and, and as a person. The thing about uh, Charles Mingus's writing, his ballad writing is just beautiful. I mean, there are many tunes, ballads that Mingus wrote that I love. Portrait is one of them. I've seen all kinds of pictures. Most of the beauty 
Mingus of the Wild. Mingus's ballad writing in particular, there was something haunting about his melodies, mixed with sensuality and, and also his melodic inventions were a little different. Musical curveballs all over the place. I've seen it Mother Both flowers that brave the I worked with Mingus for about 12 years. I was about 20 years old when I first joined his band. Mingus was in his early 40s, I think. And with my own writing, every now and then I can hear influences from Mingus. And not because I'm trying to do it on a conscious level, uh, just because of osmosis and for years of being with him and having you know, the sounds and chords uh, from some of his music in my in my mind. The winds and the rain, the love of the flames, leaves on the ground, mountains gray brown, tip with a dash of also, I did learn from Mingus how to be thematic in my writing because Mingus wrote lyrics to his tunes. He was very political and he wrote political songs with, with protest words, but he wrote love songs and he wrote his own words. And he also wrote ballet uh, music. He wrote for, for dance and movement. I think that also influenced me uh, where that I started uh, thinking about music in an episodic way, because uh, he certainly did. I think that kind of consciousness he brought to me, I, I became aware of that, that you just don't write a bunch of notes. You have a reason, you have a story that you want to tell. Tip with a dash of glowing white snow But uh, what I learned from uh, Mingus Bartok and all the just different variety of music and styles that I've, I've listened to through the years, all of that has impacted how I think about music and uh, certainly led to me thinking episodically about music and not just writing notes for instruments to play, but also for people to dance. And that experience as being resident composer with the San Diego Ballet really brought all that to fore. I learned how to write for dance and how to be aware of a storyline and not just to ramble, but write meaningfully and to be structured. And um, also my daughter, uh, Camille, is like one of the principal dancers uh, with the San Diego Ballet. So basically she's the inspiration for doing that project, the Jazz Dance Suites. 
That was San Diego jazz saxophonist Charles McPherson. Coming up on KPBS Evening Edition at 5 p.m. on KPBS Television, health officials say big celebrations should be out for New Year's Eve. So how can people celebrate? And join us again tomorrow for KPBS Midday Edition at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jade Hindman with Christina Kim. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.